Welcome to Clearly Underrated, a mind-expanding podcast for the innately curious. Today on the podcast, I'm very excited to be speaking about medieval poet Christine de Pizan with Susan Savoy, an actress with an amazing one-woman show called Je Christine. Then, as I dwelt in fortune's court, where great mischances I did court, I of a sudden saw that she took notice and remembered me, and with great haste flew to me straight, to help me in my direst strait, to aid me in my deepest need, I who could only groan and plead for anyone to hear my cries. I'll tell what rescue she devised, and my refashioned form unveil. I, who from female into male was changed by fortune with one bolt, she made my body melt and mold into a man, real, genuine, where once a woman I had been, a man I swear I have not lied. The proof is in my manly stride that was so feminine before. I tell the truth and nothing more. But in a fable, I'll recount how this mutation came about, this change from woman into man, and all who wish to hear it can request it, for they'll know this tune as the mutation of fortune. Let's let's start at the beginning. Um, I'd, I'd love for you to tell me just a little bit about Christine de Pizan. She's the, the subject of our, our episode today. Tell me a little bit about who she was and where she came from. Christine de Pizan was born in Venice in uh, about the year 1364. Her father was a very prominent doctor, astrologer, and philosopher, which, of course, those those three hats sort of went together back in those days. He was sought after by several kings in Europe, really, you know, the, the big dudes, the big players. And um, he eventually took uh, a position at the court of Charles V in France because at the time Charles V who was known as Charles the Wise had uh, had brought the court of France back into its you know gr- to great glory his military campaigns during the hundred years war had brought a lot of France back under the French crown which had been taken by the English he had made great strides and uh, it, really his court was just it was glittering and um, he had built this great library and had really good advisors so he sought after Christine's father who um, was really well known for giving good advice even military advice strategy advice Charles V had um, been poisoned and it was known, they, I think it was something like arsenic that he had been poisoned with. And it was known that when these abscesses on his arm, they were sort of weeping abscesses. And it was known that when they, when they dried up, that would mean that he was very close to death. And so he was looking for a doctor who could save him. And I think he probably thought that Tommaso de Pisano was that doctor. So... Tommaso moves to the court and several years later he brought his whole family with him and Christine at the time was you know four or five years old something like that but she remembered years later what it was like to um, to arrive at the court of Charles V and how, how lovely he was to them and kind and welcoming. She had access to that library as far as we know. She also had access to her husband to her father's books and his 
learning. He uh, he loved her, and he was very proud of the fact that she was uh, had a, um, a a scholarly mind, and encouraged her in her learning. But her mother really felt that she was more traditional, and she felt that the woman's place, the girl's place, was at her spinning wheel, and that uh, she should plan on marrying and really forget about the books. So she discouraged. Christine's uh, scholarly pursuits and Christine really bemoaned that fact later on in life even though she loved her mother very much and felt that she got a lot of her um, a lot of her mother's spiritual uh, qualities and a lot of benefit from her mother and in, in just character as far as her character she felt that she helped her build her character but Christine really did not pursue her scholarly interests all that much until she hit 25 when she was widowed. Her husband died. Her husband was in the service of the king and was away from home and died. Well, Christine had three children and became destitute overnight. She was not, widows were not allowed to inherit their husband's property and so forth. And she couldn't even get his his back pay from the work he had done for the king. She had to go to court and try to get his his paychecks, basically. And it took her eight years, and she finally gave up after eight years. In the meantime, had to pretend that she was doing all right, because if it became known that she was destitute and, and hurting, she would have been probably sent away to some, you know, some home for poor women, some workhouse, whatever. I don't know what they had in France at the time. She would go out wearing her nice dress every day and hold her head up high, even though underneath she was trembling and shaking, as she says, and began writing little poems, which she sold to the French nobles for, you know, however much they would pay her. And over time, they began requesting longer and longer poems until she started writing book-length poems. And because she knew so much about the French court, her her poetry was infused with political commentary. And that became more and more valuable to the royalty, especially the young queen, Isabeau of Bavaria, um, who took um, Christine sort of under her mentorship. And Christine used that mentorship to her advantage, as you know, we'll probably talk about later. That's how Christine went from being destitute, and she really was, she had nothing when she was widowed, to becoming a very wealthy woman only on, well, she made a good, probably made a good real estate deal in selling the family's estate, but also she made a great deal of money as an author, which was just unheard of, especially for a woman. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about the two sides here? One is what made her poetry so successful and her work so successful? I'd love to hear a little bit more about some of the specifics there. But also, what were some of the particular challenges that she faced, uh, particularly being a, a female author in this time period, in, in sort of the late Middle Ages, the, the medieval period? Sure. Well, I mean, for one thing, you know, we say that it was such a big deal that she, as a woman, supported herself as an author. But if you look at even male authors at the time, they always had some other job. They were either the chaplain and then they wrote stuff or they were, you know, they, they, had, they were given property, land, and they got to, you know, make money off of that or 
um, they were in service to the king in the military. All of these other authors had some job for which they were paid. And so the fact that Christine did not have another job, she was, she was a full-time mom. There were so many components. You know, you ask, what are, what are the things that made her poetry so popular? Initially, I think what made her poetry popular was that she, her first poems were about how much she loved her husband and how much she missed him. And she wrote so feelingly about that that it really touched people because this, you know, they were in the middle of the Hundred Years' War and, you know, if the plague didn't get you, then the English did. And if the English didn't get you, then the Crusaders did. And if that didn't get you, then, you know, some other thing got you. So everyone, there was a lot of trauma. And they really, I think people really related to her deeply felt, her, her deeply felt emotions about her husband and how much she loved him. Soulette Suis is, you know, her, her, her big hit that, um, you know, Alone Am I, she, she, and she just repeats that Soulette Suis over and over and over, which, you know, if you hear those words, they're almost like a sigh, Soulette Suis, you know, it's a sigh. And um, she, she talks about how she's this little lonely, little lonely girl without her husband. She wrote a beautiful poem about marriage marriage is the sweetest thing she you know she says in her poem and yet her marriage was an arranged marriage her father chose her husband for her and she was 15 when she got married so I mean you think about that it could have really been a disaster that marriage and her great love for her husband I think was the thing that communicated really well to other people and also this was a time when courtly love was the big thing it was all the rage you know I mean every woman was every noble woman was supposed to have a lover and her husband was supposed to be a drip and here comes this woman saying no my husband and I shared a great love and it lasted 10 years until his death also she wrote in French she didn't write in Latin so it was more accessible her second big hit was her willingness to talk about how dangerous these these courtly love affairs were for the woman that it really was a conquest for the man and it was to the man's benefit but if the woman got pregnant or if she if her husband decided to lower the boom on her it it was not it was not to the woman's benefit to be in these kinds of situations she started writing these these poems and stories and and again and then of course we get into the the debate the big debate of the romance of the rose where she flew in the face of the clerics these very powerful clerics who ran the university of paris they ran all the universities and of course paris was a, a center a great center second probably only to uh, university of bologna if that, I mean, it was it was just a great center of, of universities and growing all the time. It was one of the things that attracted Christine's father to France was his his curiosity and, and desire to, to be part of that scholastic community, scholarly community. The universities were run by these clerics and the government was largely run by clerics because they were the people who could write Latin and so they were the people who recorded all the the government um, uh, documents and so forth and were involved in law so here she was this little woman 
saying, no, this book that all you clerics think is such a great book for young men to read, this Romance of the Rose, and you're heaping all this praise on it. She's saying, you know, I don't even like the fact that you use Ovid's Art of Love to teach boys to read because it's a rape manual. It's, you know, this you're, you're building this rapey culture and um, it's, yeah, it's maybe it's great for the boys, but it's not great for the girls. And if it's not great for the girls, it's not great for anybody. So she's willing to say that uh, in in writing and and duplicate it and pass it around, which just pissed off some of the clerics. But when you read her letters, you realize she did have she kind of had a um, a legal mind, a litigious mind, probably because she had spent so much time as a widow in the courts trying to get back the, the money that was owed to her from many different people. And so she knew the language. And if you read her letters in, the, in this debate carefully, you will find such, such deft arguments and such clever responses. So you've, you've, we've already talked about a couple of really wonderful facets of her work. We, you've spoken about her writings in terms of the deep emotion that she felt for her husband and that she portrayed in her writing. You've spoken about some of the, the incredible reasoning that she used in her arguments against the clerics. Could you also touch on some of her work with respect to military functions and war? I think this is an aspect that I find really fascinating that she was recognized and known for basically her counsel on on warfare. Um, such a neat aspect of her story. She gave some some of her books as a present to um, the Burgundians, to Philip. Prince Philip the Bold, who was the Duke of Burgundy at the time, was very impressed with one of her works, The Mutation of Fortune. So he decided that he wanted Christine de Pizan to write the school books for the for the Dauphin and for the other royal children. And of course, part of that, uh, part of their education had to be military strategy, military theory. She put together the uh, book of the deeds of arms and chivalry. And this book is, it's fantastic because she describes in detail the names of the canons that they were using like you know rose was the name of one in uh, seneca and uh you know they all had they all had their own name so you knew which which one was which and when she describes how much how much weight they could throw against a castle wall it's tremendous you, you, so many people who come to my show and hear me talk about this book they say well you must have made a mistake there's no way that they were pitching 500 pounds weight from these early canons and I say well why don't you google it just google that thing and they go online and they see pictures of them they see actual photographs of still existing canons from that day and um and they're shocked that she actually was describing everything in minute detail. She described, you know, the numbers of cannons you would use, the gauge of the cannons, what kind of uh, what kind of projectiles they threw, whether it was stone or cannonballs that were were made man-made. Every military man, for 
probably a hundred years after her death or even more, had Christine de Pizan's Deeds of Arms and Chivalry in his in his campaign box, probably. Again, and this is why Christine disappeared from history for a long time or disappeared from um, our consciousness, is that even though the Deeds of Arms and Chivalry was one of the first big sellers of the printing press after her death, uh, because it was such a huge book and everybody wanted it, Caxton printed it, and it was the first book printed in Portuguese on the printing press. So you can imagine how, you know, how popular it was because they knew that it would sell a lot of copies. However, in its second printing, they took her name off of it because they figured, well, it would sell more copies. And that is exactly how a woman is forgotten by um, in the history books. So this is near the end of, of Christine de Pizan's career, or at least the end of her writings. And she writes what is one of, I think it is actually, if I remember correctly, the only poem written during Joan of Arc's lifetime and one of the first writings we have about Jeanne d'Arc or Joan of Arc. Can you talk a little bit about the significance of that? Put some context around it. I think it's an an incredibly important work of hers that uh, we've sort of forgotten, right? We'll come back to why we've forgotten these things, but could you tell me a little bit more about, about that particular work and about Christine de Pizan's role in the Joan of Arc story. Yeah, um, other poems were written during Joan's lifetime, but they didn't survive. They didn't come down to us. So, so this poem, you're right. It is the only surviving poem written during Joan's lifetime um, that we have, and it was written by Christine de Pizan. It's it's very long, and it's it's not just a poem. It's it's kind of a news report and political treatise it's it's a rallying cry to the french people to get behind the dauphin and behind joan of arc as they are in real time galloping through france and so she writes this poem i find it a really startling poem some folks say oh well you know it's doggerel it's just da 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 well to me that's part of its appeal because it's it's very military in its sound you can almost hear these horses galloping across the countryside. She begins with telling about her situation and her plight and her sadness uh, for for so many years, and how the return of Charles the um, Seventh, the Dauphin, who has just been crowned, has brought her into the sunlight, and it brings her out of her hiding to uh, publish this work. It's very driving very patriotic. You know, if you're not a monarchist, you'd probably hate it. <laughs> but but we learn a lot about the about the Dauphin. We learn about Joan and not so much about where she was from, but just what it was what it was like to um, have someone have a 15, 16 year old girl pop up out of nowhere and do something that no other military man in France, no other groups of military men in France could accomplish. And when she brings it all around in the last stanza, well, I'll read you the last two stanzas. The, the penultimate stanza seems to be what's going to be the end, and then she finishes with a little footnote. So at the very end, she says, um, 
Then pray that God restore your heart, all you who ask him for his grace, that he these thunderclouds may part, the tempest of these wars erase, and that your lives proceed in peace under your monarch great and true. Your honor to him never cease, and he a good Lord be to you. Amen. And then she goes on to say, and this is the last verse she wrote in her life. She says, This verse is offered by Christine on this, the last day of July, the year aforesaid of 1429, but I hear some won't be content with my content. For those who hide from sight with neck bent low and heavy eye can't bear to look up toward the light. Thank, thank you so much. Thank you, Chad, and, I, and you'll be happy to know that many scholars are now working on her uh, her works. They're translating her works and writing about her works, so she is really beginning to come into her own again. A special thanks to Susan Savoy for sharing why Christine de Pizon is clearly underrated. You can find Susan on Twitter and Instagram at Suzy Savoy. That's S-U-Z-Y. S-A-V-O-Y. And thanks to you for listening to this podcast. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe, leave a review, or share with a friend. If you want to tell me about something clearly underrated, leave a voice message at clearlyunderrated.com or on my Anchor FM page, anchor.fm slash clearlyunderrated. This podcast is hosted and produced by me, Chad Turner. Tom Britton provided the music you hear throughout the podcast. Until next time. Thank you.